Diana Chapman is a best-selling author. Her book, The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, is one of my all-time favorites. I would underline that five times as one of my all-time favorites. She is also an advisor and executive coach who has worked with over a thousand organizational leaders, as well as a founding partner of Conscious Leadership Group. She's simply one of the best executive coaches in Silicon Valley and probably the world. Her best-selling book has a great subtitle, A New Paradigm for Sustainable Success, with the key phrase being sustainable success. Today, I get a chance to talk with her about so many different topics, but they almost all lead back to that phrase, sustainable success. Really excited for the chance to chat with her and for how expensive it is to spend an hour with her. I'm really excited for you all to get some free insight from one of the people that's simply simply one of the best executive coaches out there. Below the Line is brought to you by Playcast Media. If you want the easiest way to set up a professional premium podcast from your home or office, go to playcastmedia.com and get their premium podcast in a box delivered right to your door. It's everything you need for a premium podcast, all the equipment, info that guides you on setting up, everything you need. You basically click buy on their site and boom, your next step is basically clicking record. It's that easy. I'm recording this podcast and what you're hearing right now on Playcast equipment and my voice has never sounded better. I can't stand my voice, but I could kind of stand it with Playcast and their equipment they've given me. Having a professional sound studio in your home or office has never been easier or more straightforward than with Playcast. Go check them out, playcastmedia.com, and tell them James sent you. It's playcastmedia.com. So, let's get into it. Johnny, kick it with the music. This is Below the Line. And we're live. Hello. Diana, how are you doing this early evening? I'm great. I'm... uh... I'm just happy to be here with you. Likewise. It makes two of us. And we are sipping on watermelon water. Today's crazy drink um, is watermelon water. No vowels. Spelled with no vowels. That is... Deliciously hydrating. Yeah, I haven't had a sip yet. How is it? I like it. Hmm. Okay. Oh, that's really sweet. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm... It's a little sweet too. I agree. But... Pretty good. Pretty good. We'll see. Check in in a few minutes. So, Diana, we were chatting uh, just a few seconds ago about, you're telling me about, I think you said 15 years of work with Enneagrams. Mm-hmm. So what is the, the background on Enneagrams? Okay. So we don't know for sure where the origins of Enneagram come from, but we, we think they're at least 3,000 years old. I was sitting with an archaeologist on a shuttle bus at an airport. He said, I think it could even be older. But we know we're finding the Enneagram models in Egyptian tombs. We're still finding more and more of them in in old sites. And we think that they've come from these ancient um, people who were studying human beings and looking for what causes reactivity in a human being. And, you know, we came up at one point with these seven deadly sins and so the Enneagram is those seven deadly sins plus two more. And so it's this Interesting. map that says, 
We don't want to put you in a box. We want to show you you're already in a box that you don't see. And if we could help you see it, we can help you get out of your reactive patterns. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we have a little map here with these lines. And if you follow these lines, it can help you get more in balance so you can be more present, conscious, and uh, away we go with the Enneagram. And so, do, so it does have religious kind of undertones to it? I would say spiritual, more mm -hmm. spiritual undertones than religious. Of course. Well, we're in California, so <laughs> that is the preferred nomenclature. Um, well, just meaning I don't think it's connected to Christianity or Judaism or right, something like right. that. I think it's something more universal that came. Right. It's, it is, you know, so I came across it, I was telling you, three or four years ago, and, and I couldn't tell if it was, a, you know, astrology or if it was Myers-Briggs and it felt kind of like a little bit in between um, and and there are friends of mine that swear by it and friends of mine that are like no there's no that is like in fact I think the ones that are turned off by it are turned off by it because it seems to be catching hold the last few years mm -hmm. taking off yeah you know it's probably the most valuable tool I have in my tool belt uh, when I work with founders um, to help them learn how to be more present as leaders and and create more effective relationships amongst co-founders and other team members. So I'm a huge fan. And I would say it's made the biggest difference in my life in creating an exquisite marriage and being a really, uh, I think, successful parent by knowing the Enneagram types of my kids and my husband So and myself and them knowing mine and so and my friends and it's my parents my siblings it's just it's greatly affected my own personal life so i i never give anything out yet to the world that i don't first try on myself and make sure it's really valuable in my world before i use it with others right well it's uh there's a good articulation of i think people's skepticism my own skepticism around it was very much of like just not necessarily believing that you know, we can be just put into one box um, and and it and that there's you know only so many makes and models of humans but I I, it, I like the articulation of um, it's not to put you in a box but that you're already in a box and you don't know it and I think that does kind of map to my experience with it as um, as a three is my is my number and and feeling like oh this is a reaction like that is where i'd say my uh reactive mode comes from mm -hmm. and and yeah it's what what's uh what number are i'm a are type you? eight called the challenger or the leader okay and um and my type the the snake in the head of a type eight is um watch out the world is a dangerous place it's out to get you so you better be strong and powerful and in charge and then nobody can hurt you mm. and so my that snake can be always on the lookout for it i think that's against you watch out watch out don't be vulnerable don't let them they can hurt you and so it's this constantly being with that voice that oftentimes i'm not even aware of it's just so regular that it starts to become the background noise that i don't even notice anymore Interesting. And, and has it guided you or at least being aware of that box? Has it guided you, say, like in the last two weeks? Oh, yeah. Um, let's see. Um, Either guided you away from, you know, a potential, you know, uh, mishap or or has it led to a potential you know, mishap? Yeah. What I would say is um, I had a 
a situation happen where one of my colleagues was in conversation with one of my clients that I work with without me knowing it. And immediately when I first heard it, I got reactive and I had this, you're against me. Um, you're, you know, you're not thinking in my best interest and you're the, you know, you're somebody I've got to conquer now and squash. And mm -hmm. I could feel that aggression kick in of wanting to stop and control something as if it's a problem. So then I could catch it and go, hold on, Diana, there doesn't have to be a problem here. You know, let's learn, let's find out what happened. Um, there is nothing that's dangerous or a threat here. And so then I could come back and speak more um, from curiosity versus reactivity and not be a jerk, basically. Mm -hmm. So um, so both I saw the reactive pattern kick in, noticed it, could catch it and then shift it. And that's the whole point of Enneagram is let's help you become aware, accept yourself that that's happened, doesn't have to mean something about you, and then how do we shift? Interesting. Well, and, and the how we got to know each other was through uh, you are a coach to some of the best founders I've ever ever met here in the Bay Area, and uh, you also are co-author of of one of my favorite books on leadership: Fifteen Commitments of Unconsciously or Conscious Leadership. Um, and and it's something that I think a lot about in terms of you know conscious leadership and unconscious leadership, and and uh, and then a third. You know, touchstone is also just below the line is uh, similar. You all have a very different application of those three words, but it's the first time I'd ever heard of those three words as five years ago or so in your book. And so I want to touch on that in a second. But um, but I I'm fascinated by this uh, you being an enneagram expert because I'm like you know casually tossing about in cocktail parties, but uh, you're an actual expert on it. So. Um, what have you noticed within founder work? Are there certain types of founders that there's a pattern that it's, you know, they're typically one category or one number? And it's nine numbers for those that don't know. It's, you know, nine numbers. Yeah, um, numbers one through nine. I see a lot of three founders, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of seven founders, a lot of eight founders. Um, Is and there then, any number that you don't ever really see? You don't see. see um, you don't see a lot of four founders. And which what's four? A four is called the individualist or the uh, artist. Mm -hmm. um, there are some Joe Greenstein being one of them, right. but you don't see them. Yeah. You don't yeah who connected us. Um, but you don't see a lot of them. Um, you don't see uh, you don't see a lot of two founders. Certain types not as often. And what's do you do you know them by heart of one two three? Sure. Okay. Yeah. What what are they? Okay. So type one is called the reformer. Sometimes okay. called the perfectionist, but I like the reformer. And the focus is on, hey, everything could be better. How could mm. everything be better? Type two is called the helper. And what's what's their snake or the, the shadow? Oh, this, the, dark side? the snake in the one's head says, um, you know, you're bad and corrupt. You got to find a way to be good. And there is a good and right way and go find it. So they get very into the right way, integrity, being, mm. you know, doing, they, they can see the world very black and white. Mm, that's a reformer okay that's the reformer type two is called the helper and the helper the snake in the helper's head says you know no one's gonna really love you just the way you are why don't you take care of their needs and that'll that's how they'll you'll get them mm. to like you so the helper gets very good at tuning in and what do you need and how can i support you and so they tend to be in roles where they're they're offering a lot of support and nurturing yeah type three is the achiever 
the snake in the uh, three. And you head. can diagnose me all you want on <laughs> my own podcast. I'm not sure. I think it's... you're a three, but we'll see. Okay. The three, the snake in the three's head says, "You know, you're not worthy. Just being you isn't enough. I need achievement. I, you need to produce and cr- mm-hmm. and and achieve things, and then you'll have some worth." So there's I a can definitely I completely identify with with that, and certainly, yeah, early in my life. Um, yeah, and all of us can a little bit because the United States definitely used to be a very three culture. And so we all mm. had achieve, achieve, achieve. It was very much a part of what we all grew up in. Mm. And so um, interesting. So we all can relate to that a little more than maybe other types. Um, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't have partial types. You can. Well, the truth is we're all, all of the types. So okay. I have a little one and two and three. I have all of them in me. So, and some will be more relatable. Um, and so it's, yeah, so it's not uncommon for people to say, oh, I can relate to that one and that one, but we're really looking at when you're most reactive, what's going on, what's the threat. Mm, Okay. And so three would be just not achieving, uh, or the failure to, to achieve. If you are failing, it's because none of us like to fail, of course, but for a three, since my achievements are directly related to my worth, Mm -hmm. that means if I failed, I am a failure. It feels very much like that's just been who I am. So I can't fail. Mm-hmm. So there's this real threat to failure. And I and I asked you uh, just before, I was like, we need to record this uh, because I asked, uh, can people change in their life? And can people move from one to another? Yeah, our, the theory is no, you really do get a type, a reactive pattern develops as a child. And that reactive pattern is the one that you work with then through your life. Um, you certainly can look different on the outside. That you can change. But but the internal reactivity, if you're really going to get stressed out, it typically goes back to a same pattern throughout your life. Mm-hmm. And I, I quipped. I was like, I think I'm the first person and that's changed because <laughs> I felt like I have. I feel like I have uh, shifted from completely identifying as a three and then through just many different kind of influences. Um, I feel like I'm a seven and or was misdiagnosed as a as a three. Yeah. Um, originally. Yeah, and you might relate to both a lot. And mm-hmm. you know, but you might but the key question is when I'm most reactive, what's the threat? If for a three it would be more a threat of not achieving, mm-hmm. whereas the seven would be more a threat of missing out on something. Yeah. So seven's like, gosh, there's just something I know I want, and it's somehow out there. It's not here. And so the seven's always out seeking like a hungry ghost, that thing that will finally fulfill them. Yeah. Okay. So we got performer one, two is helper, three is achiever or performer? Achiever, performer, both of those. Four is? Four is the artist or the individualist. individualist. Okay. And the snake says, you know, there's just kind of something broken about you. Uh we can't, you know, we don't know what it is, but it's broken and it's never going to get healed. So, mm. you know, go find your own unique style, your own unique way of doing things. And that's what will be worthwhile for you. So the individualist then gets born from that mindset. Interesting. I know, I know, I feel like I, I've in, I'm sure this is common. I feel like I know people in these different buckets. And the individualist, um, the artist, I, I definitely know people in that in that bucket a lot of musician friends yes in that bucket a lot of highly creative people are in that bucket and that's one of the you know one of the each snake in our head has a gives a superpower or a gift and so you know um 
If you're broken, you know, you start to become more of this kind of individual, creative, unique. You're willing to be more unique, and so creativity is more accessible. And so, um, yeah. those folks have some incredible talent often in the in the creative arts. Right. Yeah. Broken would be like the shadow descriptive term, and <laughs> unique would be yes. the lighthearted uh, yeah. and optimistic view on that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then five. Five is called the um, obs observer, okay. or um, sometimes the investigator. I like that term. And the snake in the fives heads, like everybody got the manual how to be human, but you. Um, you're going to have to figure this thing out. Go learn everything you can about how to get along in this world, and then maybe you can figure it out. And so there's this deep, deep um, sense of, I've got to go learn, learn, learn. And of course- that To be able to belong? To be able oh. to understand how to do mm. things, you know, to to understand how to be and do here. And, uh, and so it creates the superpower of incredible intellectual capacities. Interesting. Okay. This mm -hmm. is, yeah, it's, this is- it's always fascinating when I go back through these and, and learn about them and, and start to see which ones I identify with and which ones I just don't identify with. Um, hoping this is interesting for, for listeners too, but uh, all right. So six is... Type six is called the questioner um, or the skeptic. And the snake in the six head says, you know, you're not safe and you know, you can't trust. You can't trust yourself and you probably can't trust others. So you're going to have to anticipate all kinds of problems out there to make sure you can be safe. So mm. creates a real superpower for looking out for what could go wrong. Let's think about this. And so they're really great to have on a team, sixes, because you know the three might say, hey, let's go achieve this. And the six will say, well, wait a minute. Have you thought about this, this, and this that could go wrong? And the three was like, well, no, I didn't. Thanks so much. And keeps us from having pitfalls along the right. way. Yeah. Okay. And okay. And then seven. Type seven is called the enthusiast or the adventurer, mm -hmm. and the snake in their head says, "You know that thing that you really want? It's not here. It's out there. Go get it." Mm. And then you go arrive there, and it's like, "No, it's not here. A little it's bit out further. there. Go yeah. keep going. Keep yeah. going." And so it creates this sense of adventure and willingness to try a lot of things, but also kind of a, an unwillingness to just rest in the moment and recognize it's all here already. Yeah, I definitely yeah identify with. With that one, I feel like that's the one I've become over time um, and or just realized I, I was uh, mm -hmm. the whole time. But I'm total enthusiast yeah. down to, I mean, like the macro side of things. I moved, my first job out of college was in South Africa and uh, went from there to Silicon Valley and just never, never really, it didn't bother me at all to go chase an adventure. Oh, it was always kind of yeah. called to adventure and just to the micro sense, like I'm total enthusiast. I I love sharing things, mm -hmm. like the weird drinks. Yes, or <laughs> or the seven. yeah, or it's uh, or it's you know my emails have way too many exclamation marks. Yes, and I've thought, you know what, maybe I need to tone this down. And I was like, no, other people need to tone it up. <laughs> Life's pretty good. We should uh, we should uh, we should you know actually or. It's just it was just natural to how I would talk, so I'd be like, okay, well, this I'm gonna leave this uh -huh. out. Yeah, sevens are so optimistic and enthusiastic, and that's one of the gifts too. Is like, hey, why suffer? You know, there's so mm. much to be excited about. And sevens also have a great gift for change. You know, I can, I, I can change on a dime. I'm fine in the unknown, mm. um, because that adventure has turned me into somebody who can adapt very quickly. Interesting. And then yeah. the, the type eight the snake, is my type. Or the snake for the seven you said was um, the, oh not resting. The one that says what you really want, it's over there. 
Mm. Go get it. So it's always, you know, hungry for something it doesn't think it can get. Interesting. Okay. And then eight. Type eight, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that's my type is, uh, you know, the world is a dangerous place. So me and Donnie Trump, you know, we're type eight. So, you know, you got to put up walls and you got to protect yourself. Do you yourselves. think he's an eight? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. So we're going to put up walls. We got to, we get, you know, they're bad. They're going to hurt us. You know, we can't trust them. And so we got to be powerful and in charge and strong and, you know, that mm. then we'll be safe. So it creates a lot of a, a very confident, um, can be narcissistic. Uh, I, you know, I've got it all figured out. Right. Um, mindset. Interesting. And then type yeah. nine is called the mediator or the peacemaker. And the snake in the nine's head says, yeah, you know, nobody really cares what, you know, what that you're here or what you have to say it's it's not really particularly valuable so can you just kind of back up into the blend into the corner and don't make any conflict and we can all have some we can all get along and that's probably the best route for you so the nine can then start to suppress their opinions and try to just keep harmony and of course it creates a superpower of helping others be able to create peace amongst themselves um and uh, and when they don't get bitten by their snake, they can come out and speak their own opinions and yeah. be willing to have some conflict. I have so many questions about this. <laughs> I'll try to uh, contain them within it, just a few. But one is, um, is where is it a genetic route? Is it a childhood experiential route? There's still, you know, here's one of the criticisms about Enneagram that I, I understand, which is there's not a lot of science behind it right now. And so we don't know. Um, uh, it's really a it's a model that you try on and recognize it has value because you say it does and um, but we don't have much research yet but so far at least amongst the the Enneagram folks it's probably you're more genetically wired to be a particular type and then your environment at home if you were raised in a pretty nurturing environment then you're not going to have the real shadowy patterns of your type but if you're raised in an environment that was stressful then you'll see more of that the reactive patterns showing up so likely i had probably a more nurturing childhood than donald trump and so he has more of that shadow than i do because of the pressures and what was going on in his life versus mine as a kid mm. so we both are the same type but we might our reactivity in our type will be different based on environment okay and so um you're saying there you notice patterns with founders to be which which ones again threes often often founder well it's getting more and more varied but it's been a lot in the past a lot of organizational leaders were threes sevens and eights mm -hmm. um more so than the other types and it doesn't mean that any of those types can be in that role and be founders um but there tends to be certain types that are more likely to want those roles or go after those roles right or be insecure enough to to push themselves to into those roles because they feel like it's going to serve them in, yeah. in some some form. Yeah. Yeah, the um that's really yeah, I have not heard that that in-depth explanation of them and I literally just like well Google, you know, the different enneagrams at a dinner party and you know, people will chat about the numbers that they think they they are, but really it's it feels like it's come out of nowhere in the last 3 years. Mm -hmm. Uh why why is it being picked up well, so so quickly these days. You know, it got it got popular in the U.S. because the Jesuit priests learned about it from some of their cohorts in other parts of the country. I mean, the world, and they it was like this little secret thing they had that made them really good at counseling their parishioners because if they mm. could know their enneagram type, they could help them with their stress, with their reactivity.
And then it kind of spread from there in the U.S. Um, and it's just, I think, uh, it's it's an international phenomenon right now. It's not just happening in the U.S. that it's getting popular all over the world. And in fact, in Northern European countries, many of the leaders would all have Enneagram coaches. It's just part of the culture there. So really? it's, um, but it's, uh, I think it's being tried on and it's it's working, particularly, I think, Enneagram being brought into uh, startups and organizations, one thing people say reliably is it has built so much more empathy and compassion on our team for one another, and that's really helped in our ability to collaborate and listen and and uh, iterate together. Well, and it introduces this uh, this massively significant concept that I think I know for myself it took me a long time to even even. I think partially appreciated that we're different. Yeah, we are. <laughs> and, and we operate <laughs> so, so different. So like, I think we, and it's so obvious to say that. And yet it is a really big thing to, to accept um, that people are not like me. Yeah. I remember I was parenting my daughter the way I would want to be parented. Right. And it really wasn't working for her. She's a type four. So I went and found a four coach and I said, tell me, what does it like? What would a four want? So she gave me all this advice and I literally like went back to my daughter's bedroom. She was 10 at the time. And I almost said verbatim what this coach had told me to say. And my 10-year-old daughter looks me in the eye and says, I don't know who you're talking to, but it's totally working. Keep doing it. Oh, wow. And that was just the beginning of a real shift in my relationship because I didn't know she saw the world so differently from me or wanted a very different kind of parenting style than I did. So uh, that was a game changer for us. Wow. And how do you coach... What's an example of how you'd coach a founder through through something uh, using an Enneagram kind of back backdrop? Usually it's it's looking at, um, you know, like a lot of type threes will say, I start getting anxious mid-Sunday thinking about the week coming up. Yeah. And um, I'm not enjoying being with my family because I'm already worried about like all the things I got to check off my list when I go to work and I'm so focused on that because of this reactive pattern of I got to achieve, achieve, achieve. And so they don't know that's why I got to achieve, achieve, achieve. So I help them see, can you see how there's such an attachment to being able to achieve and check these boxes off that then there's this anxiety that kicks in and that if you if you could relax the need to achieve, then you can enjoy your weekend, finish up and you know of course prepare, but it doesn't have to be from this anxious place. What are some of the ways that someone would be able to relax in that situation? Well, a lot of it's deep work of recognizing your worthiness. You have to come back and do the, the work of self-acceptance that has nothing to do with um, what you've done or what you're doing to come back and be a human being and recognize that's enough. One of the things that in that vein that's, that kind of opened my eyes to what I really want in life, which is, and maybe this is tied to my Enneagram, or maybe it's a universal longing of, of connection, and that achieving in a certain real way was actually leading to a lot of disconnection. Mm -hmm. I mean, the tactical disconnection of working so hard and running a company and, and not being able to make all of these important yeah. know, family moments, friend moments, but also disconnection of just I think that's a universal amongst all the Enneagram types is we all want connection. I think that's just very human. And and Enneagram would just say, here's the thing that takes you out of connection. So 
if you can wake up to that, then you create a life in which connection is a reliable experience. Right. Yeah. And and a, a, achieving in many ways. Uh, there's a great book. Ego is an enemy, and ego is slight tangential to that book. Is yeah, it's the total enemy to connection. It's like put this out in the world because I want you to accept me for as a three. You know, achieves. And those are the things that drop a lot of negative energy. Yeah, I would say ego in reactivity is an enemy to connection. Ego oh. itself, not necessarily, but in reactivity, yes. I've got to ask, why the distinction? <laughs> well, egos are fantastic. You know, they're so intelligent. So we all have an ego primarily to keep us alive. Um, but it's also thoughtful about, hey, you know, if you want to create a connection over there, here's a couple things you might want to consider. So it, from above the line, <laughs> I use a model I yeah, use. And we, right? we should, yeah, we'll talk about that right. in a second. From yeah. above the line, we're meaning from a, from a relaxed state of presence, the ego is a real help and it's intelligent. And so, you know, I don't want to get rid of an ego. I don't want to stop an ego. I just want to have the ego be something I can utilize to support me in creating what I want versus having the ego be running me out of a threatened state that causes me to, to go away from the things I most want. Mm, yeah. Well, and and touching on the below the line, above the line, within fifteen commandments of of uncon of conscious leadership, um, I've got the word unconscious. That's in awesome. My, in I my like book. it. Well, Talk about unconscious. <laughs> well, really, I, what's I, true I, is we are all more unconscious than we are conscious. So maybe right. that's a great. <laughs> no, and I and I do talk about the unconscious. I guess a little bit more than than um, you know the, the the former, but the um, the latter rather. So the within the book is it is this only a concept within 15 commitments or have you have you guys been working around this concept this model is old i don't know who originally started it i learned it from gay and katie Hendricks, who were big teachers for me um, but i know it came from someplace beyond them so the model is just a simple line and the idea is in any given moment you're either above the line in a state of trust or you're below the line in a state of threat that's it it's really mm -hmm. simple either you're um, open and curious and want to learn or you're defensive and wanting to be right and defensive and uh so it, my experience is is that we're biologically wired to go below the line it's natural and normal and that doesn't mean anything about us just that we're breathing humans and we right. go below the line but we have the power to shift from that state of threat to trust and that's what those commitments are about is learning how to do that um one commitment at a time yeah, and I and I loved the visual. I remember when I was running tilt, I would look at the visual of of or you had this. Um, I love the visual in my mind, but you had this pamphlet of like these are the qualities you're feeling below the line or above the line. And the book uh, talks quite a bit about it as well. But the um, the I think you you had mentioned one point during either uh, either in real life or it was in the book that people spend 98% of the time or how much of the time do people yeah, spend I think, below the line? I think um, my experience is that the average population spends you know, 95% of their time below the line. And, and fearful. In a threatened state, threatened you know, state. in some way, just like I'm concerned about, do you like me? Am I safe? Do I have enough of everything? You know, uh, I want to control things. So I, I get scared. And and from that place, I behave in ways that um, cost me and other people. But there's also payoffs to, to behaving that way and um, and thinking that way. And so 
what we're interested in is just helping people be able to recognize where are you? Are you in that state of threat, which isn't fine? And then can you have some compassion? You know, you're a human being. You get scared. We all get scared a lot. And um, can we let all these scared little ones be here? I spent the day to day working with a bunch of founders at 10 in the morning and 10 in the afternoon, and they would bring up different issues. And I'd say, great, can you just recognize you're scared? I'd say, yeah, I'm like, how old are you? How old's the scared one? And I heard things like five, you know, seven, 12, 16, you know, just a bunch of scared kids. And then, uh, and then if you can be able to acknowledge you're in a threat and, and, uh, and accept that scared one, then you're available for a shift. Hmm. And then we teach a lot around how do you shift. Yeah. Well, the, the and I think that's part of the four big questions. Yes. So yeah, yeah we'll, uh, we'll touch on that. Um, but this is this is I think for listeners just to um, tease us out a little bit further. So you know if if the majority of of the average person's time and you said what, did you give it a number? It was ninety five percent. Ninety five percent of their time below yeah. the line in that uh, threat nor potential threat state. Mm -hmm. It maps a lot to this this idea that we're just, we are like sonar, uh, sonar machines in a submarine just looking for threats, yes. looking for them constantly. And, and maybe it is because we're just so biologically wired to not die yeah. rather than biologically wired to live, <laughs> biologically <laughs> wired to not die, yeah. which is pretty different. And and that do not die is is at the bedrock of of okay where are their threats Where's where the are their threats, and in in that in that conceptual realm one of the things that I try to uh, give to to other founders is um, your book as well as another book called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Oh, I love that book. And it's a great combination. It was a great combination for me um, because it was essentially saying. Look, your ninety-five percent below the line has gotten you to this point at twenty-six, mm -hmm. at twenty-seven, and it maybe has propelled you a little bit ahead of of uh, certain people that you know were at the starting block at the same time, and you can get completely hypnotized into thinking it's working for you. Yeah, and yet maybe it's driven by extreme anxiety. <laughs> you know, my one of my best friends in the world um, wakes up at five a.m. every morning. And in one level, it's admirable. He's up at five. He's at the office by seven, first in the office, and is done with his essentially his biggest tasks of of the day by ten thirty. Mm. In many ways, that sounds amazing. He's yeah. ahead of of everyone else in the starting block. But he told me it's because he has such bad anxiety. It when he the tiniest bit of waking up at five, he's like, oh, okay, I can't fall back asleep. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it's not this admirable, productive ahead of, of everyone. It's driven by a um, yeah, by you know this anxious from this anxious place. And I think similarly, we can, in kind of a zoomed out thematic way, think that we're in a place in life that that maybe we feel is is important um, because of of things that are actually just what got you here is actually going to be the exact things that lead to you not. Yeah, going to the next. Yeah, because those level. things worked, but then you add on more responsibility or more pressure, and then those things don't work as well. And so you've got to be willing to let those go, and pull some new tools out. Right. Yeah, and that's it is a uh, 
it's a nice uh i love that kind of weaving of both books because it's basically like you know yes you might have gotten to this place without knowing that you're 95 percent below the line yeah that's great those but, are good uh, combos yeah so well the well thank you um but it's a uh your book it really can stand on its own it's the first one that i do recommend to people so um in that vein do if you were to spend 15 minutes 10 15 minutes just talking about the concepts of the book um for someone that hasn't heard about it okay how would you how would you describe the the opus that is 15 commandments of conscious leadership okay so the opus is this so we talked a little bit about the basic model which is above or below the line as a as a basic premise so the idea being um in any given moment, can I locate myself? So the first question all conscious leaders ask is, where am I? Am I in a state of trust, open, curious, got a lightheartedness about me? Even dealing with serious situations, I can gamify some things. I don't get caught in like, oh, shit. Mm -hmm. And whereas when I'm below the line, I'm in a reactive state, as I discussed earlier. And I start to get into an idea that life is happening to me when I'm below the line. Versus above the line, life is happening by me. I'm the creator of this experience from above the line. And below the line, no, 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 this experience is happening to me because you did that or that happened or the traffic or my economy or whatever. And so um, the first recognition, where am I? And then if I am below the line, I'm in a state of victimhood. And the state of victimhood, we used <coughs> Cartman's got to say this watermelon water is actually terrible <laughs> it's way too sweet and it is it is making it's so sweet it's making me cough but now you're taking another sip all right i have to challenge everything maybe i'm say. just yeah oh good call <laughs> well i've done my enthusiast due diligence it is not good uh to me but okay so uh in i'm in a state of victimhood we use cartman's drama triangle cartman the psychologist who studied how we're doing relationship and said most of us learned how to do relationship from a mindset of victimhood which is either we're we are a victim you know it's hard and i tried and i can't if yeah not. there's three roles victim villain hero exactly right? villain is blaming you know i should have done better you should have done better they should do better there's something wrong I, I point the finger and then hero's job is seeking temporary relief i need to re i need relief but just temporarily and uh so those what people find is is that most of the issues that they're dealing with are all them running around in that drama triangle. And mm -hmm. so as long as you're in that triangle, you're not gonna solve your issues permanently. Or if you're able to solve it, it'll shift to a different pattern. Um, so you're gonna still be in the same something um, over and over again. And so the practice- and only, and only see others as being in one of those three. Exactly, and causes you know, there's a lot of payoffs for being in that drama triangle, but there's also a lot of costs. Well, and it maps to every linear story in our in our totally. you know, minds that we're attuned to. Which in life is not a linear story. Yeah. Um. And and yeah, it totally maps to narratives that that you can either create for your own life or you know create for a group psychology. Yes. Um, and yeah, can be can be powerful. Yeah, just look at all the big blockbuster movies. You know, the ones who make the most money have a big hero because there's a bad villain, because there's a poor victim, and you know, it makes right. a great story. So highly entertaining, which is one of the big payoffs for being in the drama triangle. Right. And then, um, so you start to recognize, oh yeah, I'm in the triangle. I'm in a state of victimhood, and that's okay. I'm a human being. I get scared, and I can accept that. That's the next question. And then, am I willing to shift? And 
you know, we said, we know 15 commitments is a lot. We get it. Um, but what we, Gay and Katie Hendricks wrote the first two commitments, which the first one says. And who, who are they? They are uh, mentors of ours who run something called the Hendricks Institute. They're both psychologists who left traditional um, universities to go create their own institution to explore um, consciousness, conscious relationship, uh, and um, somatic psychology. And so studied with them for long, 20 years. Um, and so they wrote the first two commitments. So the first commitment is I commit to take 100% responsibility for my well-being, emotional, mental, physical, spiritual, um, and free up any blame. And commitment number two is I commit to let go of being right, to being more open to curiosity and learning versus defending an opinion. So they wrote those first two. And you know they are the cornerstones. We would argue... Just work on those two and you're set. They, Do you mind repeating those two? Sure. First one is commitment number one is I commit to take 100% responsibility for the circumstances of my life. Mm -hmm. My emotional, physical, spiritual, uh, mental well-being is mine to take responsibility for. And I don't blame when I'm taking responsibility. I don't blame myself or others. Um, I'm just more interested in taking a look at how do I create my results. And then commitment number two is all around curiosity. So I commit to letting go of being right, to being open, more open to learning than defending my opinion. So those are the two, two cornerstones. And uh, people said, great, but can you nuance that for us? Like, what does that mean? So the rest of the commitments are parsing that out more and putting more detail in about, well, it means take responsibility for feeling your feelings and having candor and not gossiping and having really clear agreements and appreciating and on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And so we just wanted to map the territory for people, like just to be more specific so people could really understand if I did all these things, I would really know what it was to be present in the moment, to be free of threat. And so if you had 10 minutes with someone, would you just focus on the first two? Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, it depends. You know, I'd say what's if I had 10 minutes with you, I might say, what's an issue going on in your life? And as I'd listen to you, I'd know I could hear what commitments were likely the biggest challenges for you and mm -hmm. go go support you with those. And does this only apply mainly apply to professional pursuits? No, it applies to all of life. Mm -hmm. So, no, we're all above or below the line in any given moment, whether we're, we're with ourselves or anybody else personally or professionally. Well, let's let's do one. Okay. Can, yeah, I'll let you run a ten minute. Okay, seminar. a little ten minute little founder coaching session here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good. So, um, tell me one challenge that you um, have been dealing with, and still still currently are dealing with right now. It could be at work or personally. Hmm. Well, personally, in this the the whole purpose of the podcast is extreme, uh, extreme candor and honesty so personally uh the biggest one is my wife and i we just had a miscarriage mm. this past week mm. and um so still uh dealing with uh just processing that it's been such a healthy experience um and like most things you would not draw up and you know, is unexpected but can be extremely grounding and, and much good can come from them and i feel like that's that's the it's the path that it, that will likely, you know, mm -hmm. take shape in, in coming weeks, months, years. But we're going through it right now. Yeah, and 
sounds like you're being with it. And um, is there anything that is becoming, is challenging or where you're feeling stuck? Because um, is there a problem in any way around this issue for you? It's, well, to be completely honest, it has not been a major um, the challenge is just um, being there for my wife mm-hmm. um, and um, and us both being being able to balance processing and, and grieving um, but also trusting and letting go yeah and so I'd say I bring it up because it's so top of mind yeah but I actually don't know if it's a major, challenge um well it sounds like um you're in your heartbreak you're letting go of a vision mm -hmm. that's a good way of putting it because that's the what we have chatted about was um just it's one of the most painful things we can do is build out this future just on a tiny bit of information and you build out this future that then you especially as an optimist you become so hopeful and enthusiastic about that future that then yeah. It's rewritten or taken away. Yeah. You know, the drop of a hat. Yeah. And so you're dealing with it's a death of a literally a death of a, of a person. I mean, it's also a death of a whole vision of a life mm. that you thought you were going to have. So there's lots and lots of letting go and lots of grieving. And at the same time, what I hear is rather that you could go at the effect of that, meaning like this shouldn't have happened and poor us and, you know, we can't be happy anymore. And you could go down that path. But what I hear is, you're letting yourself feel your feelings and letting her feel her feelings and they're in waves and you never know when the next one's coming. Just when you think you felt them all, here comes another, right. especially with grief like that. Right. So can I be with the grief, mine and hers and everybody else's, and not use optimism to get away from grief, mm. um, but uh, to tr to be in a state of trust as we grieve and move through and let go and then open to what wants to happen next and sounds like that's what's happening and there's an ache right yeah and but it, i i i hear um the guidance on not letting optimism and or the ability to adapt quickly become you know superpowers that are overused yes because it's that yes. is a very easy way that I can get away from grief. Yeah, it's very easy to go, hey, you know, okay, we can do it again. Or, and it can be a way in which you could be um, trying to get her to get away from her experience mm -hmm. um, because it might be difficult to watch her going through her grieving process and then that spurs something over there. So right. can you let her grieve as long as she wants and needs to grieve and not make that mean anything right. and not need her to be any place other than where she is. Right. So that would be the practice for you. But it sounds like sounds she has like been so inspired. She has been so strong through um, throughout it. Is and, and this is the first time she's gone through something mm. like this. Mm -hmm. And um, and it, it, even the first time to experience loss of life of some some form. She just had. She's just reflecting over the weekend. She just has never dealt with this. And so it is. Uh, but she has been so amazingly strong mm. and strong, but also being strength to be able to go to that to that grief yeah. and give it space, but also strength to 
laugh, <laughs> you know, an yeah. hour later. Yeah. And can and, you be a space in which all things actually, can you be a space in which you could be laughing and grieving at the same time, which seems like what? <laughs> but right. can I have all of that there? And I think in the culture, um, it's a missing experience for us to collectively grieve, um, support grieving. You know, we don't see a lot of grieving in the business world. It's one of my big passions is to help people feel at work. And, you know, there's deaths happening all the time at work. Mm with, I thought this baby was going to take off at work and here I have to close it down. And, you know, it's, or we thought mm. we would have this amount of money by now, or we thought we'd have this many users or right. it's a constant state of grieving that's happening for lots of teams. Right. One of, one of uh, my previous guests, Eric Reese, um, he's phenomenally, phenomenally uh, wise leader, articulate uh author and so those two things combined for a really interesting interview with him and one of the phrases that he used after a board meeting of getting something wrong that someone had delivered in the deck and it was wrong and and he he used this phrase that he went back to the person and said you know getting that wrong caused me psychological death Mm -hmm. and it's so um to your point for about three seconds four seconds i was like okay that's you know psychological death sounds pretty heavy and dramatic and then second five second six i t- completely empathized with that mm-hmm. because i had felt that in various versions that there's no other way i mean even a miscarriage mm-hmm. is a psychological death or a, a death of a vision in future that you had in addition to um actual loss so it's yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it requires lots of patience. Right. Yeah. Well, the yeah, it's grief and business. I I actually have never heard those three words put together. Really? No. Wow. Yeah. I work a lot with teams on, um, can we be sad for a minute? And can we go around and say one thing you're sad about? And it's, it's so cathartic for people to go, yeah, I'm sad. I thought I'd have more engineers on the team and it's been much more difficult to hire than I thought and I'm really sad about it and somebody else you know I'm I'm sad I thought I thought we'd have way more users by now and I had this whole vision and it's much much more challenging than I thought and um, you know we lost so and so who went over to Google and I'm still really grieving the loss of that team member and mm. so just letting people acknowledge there's loss that's re- regularly happening you know, even like, um, oh, we used to have the food be delivered this way, and I love that caterer. You know, it right. may sound silly, but those are, you know, it's just those are there. And if we don't let these feelings come through, we have to stuff them. And one of the things that I think is causing some of the greatest burnout and exhaustion in the valley and beyond is people's unwillingness to, or un- unknowingness to feel and feel their feelings and speak their the words that they're not speaking and that that withholding thoughts and feelings is exhausting mm. and that that's actually creating more of the burnout than the actual work that they're doing interesting what do you mind telling me more when did you start to recognize this as a as a pattern and and what do you mean by giving it space as a as an antidote to to um well we're burnout. human beings we have feelings you know and we we so there's you know all kinds of feelings out there. We like to break them down to five core feelings. We're not experts on this as far as these are the who's, five core. Who is we? Is it me? Is the conscious, conscious leadership is. group? Mm-hmm. Um, so we say sadness, anger, and fear. 
which are pretty universal. Most people would say those are primary feelings and joy. And then we add sexual feelings in, which is very rare, but there's a reason why we do that. So we have these primary feelings. What is the reason? The reason for this is because... And by the way, I remember that from the book, actually. I remember being... it's and this is why I love this conversation um, because it's the, just the the entire this entire interview is just touching on things that are just so blatantly obviously there, mm-hmm. so biologically wired to be there. Yeah, and well, yet we don't acknowledge it. It's like no, nope, just act like that's not. Yeah, well, we're there. sexy human beings. You know, we're sexy. and We have a lot of sexual energy, and particularly, I think a lot of founders run a ton of sexual energy. It's why they want to create, create their new babies. And you know, I want to found these things. I, right? I totally think I was. Uh, you know, I think some of my favorite founders. They'll talk about the base motivations of why they want to start their yeah. companies. One would be like wanting to start one because their friends started one and they were jealous. Yeah. Like, okay, I'm going to start a company. Let me figure out, you know, the kind of removing themselves from this whole, like, uh, it's only a social venture that happens to potentially be worth a billion dollars. They're just, my base motivation at 24 is my friend started a company and I wanted, I was jealous. Mine, I think was, um, was, I just felt like, oh, this is going to be a shortcut. Uh huh. And, Boy, was I so wrong about that. <laughs> the I think another base motivation, at least early on, to want to achieve was I was never really, I was on the fringe of the cool crowd. Mm-hmm. I was never really in the cool crowd. That's a very popular reason. And and the cool crowd, I mean, the only, the only, the below the line version of cool crowd is you want to be liked by the other sex or just the sex that you're attracted to. That's what you, you're you craving to be accepted by the two people you have a crush on, neither of them like you. Shit, I need to go remake myself. Yes. And I'm going to show them that they're wrong. Yes. Like it's, those are the base Let motivations. Let me show you how sexy I am now. I right. started like founding, I'm a founder now, bitch. It's yes, it, no, totally. <laughs> and it is, uh, you know, in eighth grade, it was like, all right, I'm not part of the cool crowd. I'm not the best athlete. I'm going to freaking win in, in schoolwork. Yes. I'm going to go win in, in business or life. Yeah, a mathlete perhaps. Right. right. Total mathlete. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so these feelings, we have these feelings and these feelings arise throughout our you know, daily lives and they're here at work. And um, you know, one of the things that we support leaders in is and founders is how do you feel and do that in a way that's friendly to those around you. And so, you know, we we pretty much legislated anger and sexuality out of the workplace because we didn't know how to feel them correctly in a way that was friendly. And so we just decided to get them out of here. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't work because how are you supposed, you know, the high side of sexual energy is it's highly creative. It's highly innovative. So it's it's nuts to say, well, we want to disrupt technology, or we want to we want to you know create something really cool here, but let's not be sexual. It's like, well, wait a minute. And when you say sexual, what do you what do you mean? What I mean is, can I run sexual energy through me? Meaning, it doesn't have to be. A, I'm not talking sexual energy like Dean sexy, mm-hmm. although that's possible. But it's about that that zing, that juice, that. That thing that gets you turned on, that makes you want to create. That it's a it's a driving force of creativity that can be channeled through, you know, intercourse, sexual involvement with somebody. But that's just one part of a much 
greater expression of sexual creative energy. So mm -hmm. in some organizations, they don't want to call it sexual energy. We say, fine, call it creative energy. And so- Well, I guess sex is the ultimate creative yeah, act. Yeah, it is. And- uh, it's the it is the creative act, and anger is often the destroying act. You know, hey, what's no longer of service here for me and my people? That's really the essence of of intelligent anger, and so these two forces are very powerful. And if we can utilize them and harness them, we can you know create really cool stuff and evolve in significant, meaningful ways. So you're basic. So you're saying they're not base level. They're just natural levels of yeah. of motivation. They're just part of the system, you know. That you can't control having these feelings; they arise. Well, in in touching on that topic, I I couldn't agree more that this so much of our dialogue or perspective today, um, the best way to like, the best way to to articulate it is like is like rearranging the topsoil on a three thousand foot mountain, mm. and it's like you can. There's three feet of topsoil. You can try to change the shape of things by legislating anger away so no one can have an outburst that then leads to uh, the god forbid psychological unsafe mm -hmm. environment because someone had an outburst i don't want to uh, touch on why i say god forbid um, but the or just okay we're not going to have any affection because that could lead to the shadow side or the dark side mm -hmm. of of sexual energy and and you can say those things but yeah like you, you say it's like rearranging the topsoil on this biology that is 3,000 feet deep of tectonic forces right. that it's it's like good luck yeah um, I remember somebody asking me aren't you appalled by the sexual um, harassment in the workplace and I said no actually I'm in awe that there's not more of it because if we really are honest about the biological wirings of ourselves you know, many of us walk around just thinking about sex a lot. And the fact that we're not acting on it and not doing anything in the workplace is phenomenal. Like, that's a tremendous amount of discipline. Now, that's not to discount that there are sexual um, behaviors that we would prefer not to have and that we ought not to have um, as best we can. But I'm also just appreciative that we are as disciplined as we are in the midst of being such sexy, creative creatures. Well, at the I I love this uh, topic, but any topic that I'm like, ooh, this is a third rail for most people. Yeah. You have to dance around. Like I love talking about those things. Well, for for just the pure just conversation that we're having that is that I feel like is is touching on something that just needs oxygen. Yes. Um, but also, um, this is just so interesting to me. I haven't I, like to do. I remember I literally years ago remember reading that in the book uh -huh. and i was like um i think though i i remember the line uh. in the book it was like yo if you're feeling something sexual you can say i'm feeling sexual energy and i was just as a ceo i was like no 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 you can't say that right and then really appreciating that you all felt no we're going to put something in here that that you have never heard before but we believe it yeah, everybody told us, do not put that in the book. Really? Oh, yeah. We had all kinds of people say, take it out. And we just decided that we were going to stand for, we need to let it be okay to be sexual beings. It's it's actually delicious. It's wonderful. It feels so good. Can it be okay? And can we learn how to have all this juice running through us and do that in a way that's easy and friendly? Because otherwise, you know, we got sick and tired of going and working in like stodgy banks 
where everybody was looking very neutral and no one was allowed to be sexy. And then we were coming in there because the leaders were getting fired for sleeping around with everybody on their staff because that energy would go sneak out on the sidelines. And so it was like, well, that's not going to work. So can we can we bring it back and let that be part of what happens here? Well, it is. I want to. I do want to just play devil's advocate of could that lead? Could are we in this state of of it not happening more because we have contained it? Yeah, that's my my well. My argument is containing it makes it have to go dark, and then if you have to go dark, then it's going to come out in these unconscious ways. So. What's it like to be able to at least say to yourself, maybe you don't want to say it to colleagues, but at least say to yourself, wow, I notice when I think about going and doing ABC, I have a lot of sexual energy. Or, wow, I noticed when I walked by so-and-so, I had a nice sexual polarity that just got lit up in my body. And I, I my body lit up. And what can I, I, how do I just run that energy and not make that about that person or think I have to do something with them, but just enjoy that and use that as fuel because you know, the high set of sexual energy is it's incredibly enlivening, you know, forget a cup of coffee, just run some sexual energy. It's free and cheap and doesn't have a big side effect. And so, uh, you know, if people learned how to do that more, they'd not be so overwhelmed and exhausted, in my opinion, because it's an un it's an unlimited source of energy. And have you had uh, backlash towards this? Absolutely. Of course. Yeah, there's some people who say, you know, I'm sure there's some people who say we wouldn't even hire you as an organization to come in here because we're not going to talk about sexual feelings. Or we do have people who say, companies will say, um, you can come in, but do not talk about sexual feelings. And so, you know, we'd like to be of service. So we'll say, great, we'll call it creative feelings. Or, you know, if you really want us to, we'll just drop it off for the moment. But um, most of the people who hire us say, you know, that's interesting. And what would it be like for me to just think about myself as you know, learning to run and open up more to experiencing sexual energy and all of the feel good that that provides. Yeah. Well, it's, I, in thinking about San Francisco as a city, as being perhaps the most sexually progressive city yeah. um, in the United States, it is, there's not a whole lot of sexual energy, actually. Um, there, there is, I think, the biological uh, yeah. kind of layers to it, but to what you're saying, I'm from um, from Texas, and and in a place like Dallas where I grew up, there's a lot of sexual energy, and it is one of the most sexually conservative hmm. cities. And mm -hmm. and uh, you know the Bible Belt, it's right there, right smack dab in the Bible Belt, and and yet the energy is there, and probably it's coming out in dark places, mm -hmm. or it's it's shadow version and where do you get the language shadow version shadow well that's a psychological concept the idea that you know any anything that's a gift casts a shadow and you just want to always be mindful of the shadow it can cast mm. so that you're you don't get caught in that unconsciously and you know shadow can cause a little drama or, right. or a lot depending on how caught you are in it so right. that's always something we work with our leaders on and I guess you could map that to the the collective work within a company is is integrating that shadow that an individual 
needs to as well or else that, that repression suppression leads to yes so we always in. look at that um we look at each individual leader you know what are your superpowers and gifts and then what are the shadows that those cast and we look at that as a culture as well your culture has superpowers and these things that are really valuable and then there are shadows to be aware of as well and so that way if you're aware of them you can avoid getting caught in them and that, that yeah. take you off course i have so many shadows <laughs> welcome so, to planet earth yeah it is uh, <laughs> so many of them and and then there's a fifth one the fifth feeling joy yeah. well you talked about yeah so there's joy so sad scared angry joyful and sexual are our five core feelings and we would say those combined make up a whole bunch of other feelings kind of like primary colors you know combined make a bunch of other colors right and so we want people to get really good at knowing how to feel those feelings locate them as sensations in the body be with those sensations all the way through to completion and then listen to the wisdom of those emotions is there a philosophical or spiritual base to the work that you do or you know just enneagram you're saying has you know a maybe a spiritual underpinning but within your five Oh, the five Primary core feelings. Colors. We got them from Gay and Katie Hendricks. I don't know where they got them from, but they made sense to us. So we kept them. Um, yeah, don't have them in a sense about the background. Well, the um, it's those five are really interesting in that, uh, or the concept that you know, everything you feel could be a mix of those. I definitely notice in myself when I'm feeling um, fearful or uh, not enough, mm -hmm. I'll see something in social media that makes me feel not enough. I feel it, it's a tightness right in, not the pit of my stomach, it's like the uh, right above my stomach. Okay. And and it's, it's so visceral, it's so physical. Yeah, it's a pit there. And so we would say that's probably more of a, co we call it a cognitive emotive mood meaning you believe a thought i'm not enough is that is that the thought something like that happens you compare yourself to somebody else it might actually be more tied to this future that i've created is now in jeopardy ah okay so that feels like there's a threat to the, my future mm -hmm. and so i believe that thought there's a threat and then i scare myself with this pit in the stomach and then that pit kind of reverberates re reverberates comes back up i'm there's a threat and then i go back to my fear anxiety i would call it yeah. and then it's a cognitive emotive loop and it can last a really long time because it, it's not a it's so tied to believing you're right that there's a threat so we say it's not very helpful to go try to feel that feeling what's more helpful is to unwind the thought and once the thought relaxes the feeling that mood tends to go away mm. and uh, and so we help a lot, people a lot with questioning the beliefs that they're holding that causes that reactivity okay so uh could we work on one specifically sure. right now um so the one that i i felt y yesterday was on uh twitter someone saying that they wanted to start a podcast that i felt like oh well they're more qualified than i am to start a podcast <clears throat> okay they're uh so you believe the thought they're more qualified than i am yes okay i also believe the thought that hey this might i might be onto something interesting here and that's that's the enemy because my imaginative uh creative force is like oh well, and it could become this and then this could happen it could become this and then there was this very credible or what i thought was a credible threat to oh well 
this person is more qualified yeah than so me to- the moment i believe this person is more qualified i'm going to go into a state of threat and my mind wants to be right that they're more qualified so that's going to immediately cause reactivity and it's going to immediately typically put me put you in some kind of a feel threat or scared mm-hmm. um, and so what we want to do is we want to go after the mind and we want to help loosen the grip of the mind um, they are more qualified your mind wants to be right about that so we want to turn that around and look and see how they're not more qualified is at least as true we're not trying to say it's more true we're just trying to say it's at least as true so when you say they're more qualified what's some evidence that you look at that has you believe you're right about that um more twitter followers okay more kind of uh, uh that's like the direct one it's like oh shit oh. they have like five times more okay so they're, they're more qualified because they have more twitter followers right okay. bigger bigger audience bigger and, audience and um coupled with this belief that you know this is a this is a unique um angle or perspective of of within the startup community and wanting or at least the first digestion of that is like, oh, this is really useful. This is really cool. And then the second is, oh, I could build on this for the psychology of creation. This the entire kind of subtext of the of the podcast. And then someone will come in and and add more, add competitive pressure to that space and that future that I've yeah. started to edge out. I'll I will go to the end of the story and say 15 minutes later I just tweeted out and said hey do you want help setting it up I got <laughs> I can tell you all the equipment to get um and I cannot tell you how power how powerful that was in unwinding the threat was just being like oh I could actually help this person uh-huh and I, I think my universal like we we're saying my universal um compasses towards connections like oh i can connect with this person on this good but for 15 minutes i like you were like yeah i went i went and like turned on the shower i was gonna jump in the shower i was like oh why does this just kind of more of like this is so interesting that i'm that i care so much because hours ago i would have said that absolutely this is this is that is that would be the best thing ever to inspire more Uh podcasts in this yeah this, uh, but you're a area. human being and you start to perceive threat and so the question would be they're not more qualified would be at least as true and so in the moment the moment you think oh they're more qualified that's a threat turn it around they're not more qualified um or i'm more qualified and look and see how that's at least as true because we want to get the mind back to neutral can your mm. mind come back to neutral so it's like well they're more qualified sure okay i'm more qualified sure so now what and you know now what do i want underneath that um, I want to continue to do what I love doing here and make sure I have plenty of followers and I'd like to have more people in the space too and what could that look like and now I'm going to get curious versus mm-hmm. being right that they're more qualified. And then another one would be um, um, I sh- we shouldn't, there's some, kind of a thought like there shouldn't be others in the space. Is that kind of an mm-hmm. underlying mm-hmm. thought as well? Turn it around, there should be others in the space. How is that at least as true so right. that you can see that, oh, you know, um, 
I can argue that if people are following that podcast, they might come look for another one like it and find mine. I might right. get actually more followers. Right. So this could actually be of service as much as it could be a threat. Right. So you're just constantly looking at bringing the mind to neutral and then going, okay, is there a preference, a preferred state I do have? And how do I create that? Right. From it a is. place of curiosity versus the moment you get threatened, you're just not going to be able to think as creatively, typically. Right. right. Well, yeah. that is... <laughs> So it was like, I think the self-serving nature of, of 15 minutes later being like, oh, let me just write him and say, hey, I can help you. The reason I even came across it is because someone mentioned, you know, it's an interesting, uh, or check out James's podcast. Uh, it's actually really interesting and, mm. and fresh within the space. And that contrast of, oh, this person thinks it's interesting. This person could compete with that was really it would it, it actually elevated the fear because it's like oh that i think there's something valuable here someone else is validating that value and then someone else could take it away take away that that value <clears throat> and so i yeah went through that kind of uh mental journey of like okay this is interesting why am i feeling this what is what is this feeling man it's so interesting that i'm feeling it physically that has its own kind of interest to it i wonder how long it'll go away and then was going to get in the shower. I was like, no, I can't get in the shower. I actually should go and write them. That'll help them with the podcast. One, for the self-serving nature of, I could actually use this as a point of connection with this person that I respect a lot. And two, self-serving nature was, the more people that podcast, the more podcasts I could cross-promote on this subject. And it was, it was com I think it was completely capitalistic. Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> but, uh, but that was, um, there was a flipping there. That yeah. was helpful. But, that was a strong feeling. Yeah, and then underneath that, you might just go, oh, I just notice I'm scared. Mm -hmm. If I'm not right about anything, I just hear the news, there might be a new one, new person in the space, and I notice I feel scared, and the intelligence of your fear says, hey, there's something that you don't know, something you're gonna need to learn when there's an addition in the space. I wonder what you need to learn here. Mm -hmm. And so you just go, yeah, great, uh, what do I wanna learn here? And you just stay open and curious that, okay, I'll need to know something different when it's just me in the space versus others in the space. And that's important. That's intelligent. So your fear mm. becomes an, like a best friend that just goes, pay attention. There's something you want to learn here. Mm. And so if you can be with that fear, which means, you know, you were describing it's like this pit kind of in the solar plexus area. Right. And you breathe with it and be with it and let it have its full experience. You meditate, I can tell. <laughs> because you were you use the word solar plexus. <laughs> Only applies to meditate. I've never heard it anywhere else, and yet it's mentioned in every uh, meditation. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so, um, yeah, I did feel it there. So and then, you be with it. And let, mm -hmm. let it be, let it have its full expression. So... Emotions show up as sensations in the body, and most of us don't take the time to let the completion of that sensation occur. Mm. We tend to want to stop it. or And sometimes you might want to stop it by, you know what, don't be scared, go help the guy. Mm -hmm. And that actually may be what we call a hero move to get away from your fear. Like, let me just go feel like I'm in control by helping him, and then I don't have to be with my scared. So I don't know if that happened for you, but sometimes people will take these actions to get away from the discomfort instead mm -hmm. of, no, wait, stay with the fear. Whew. There's the pit, you know, and I usually say like, describe it, you know, and what's it like and breathe in and through and around that sensation and just welcome it being here as much as it wants to. And then it'll take its time and go through a completion and then you'll feel a, 
a, a, a dissolution of that, a dissolving of those sensations. And then, then the curiosity of what do I get to learn from the fear can, can arise for you to learn from. Mm. Well, the, do you mind articulating the first two commitments again in your, your perfect articulation of them? <clears throat> sure. Actually, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best to remember it. Okay. Um, so commitment number one, I commit to take 100% responsibility for the circumstances of my life, my mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual well-being. And I, um, I commit, and where versus below the line, it's I commit to blaming and um, others and myself for the circumstances of my life. So that's commitment number mm -hmm. one. Commitment number two above the line is I commit to curiosity, to letting go of being right and making learning more important than being defensive. Mm. So something like that. I don't have my right. words memorized, um, but that's the that's the core concepts. The yeah, the, I feel like there's there is uh, It seems like significant overlap with spirituality or, or religion in the first the and, and um i listeners might know i'm a big fan of eastern philosophy philosophy and and but heavily influenced by um christianity and a huge huge fan of of just the ideal of this this capital m, m mythical character of jesus mm. it's a pretty powerful concept <laughs> and it's why it's lodged in our our conscious and unconsciousness in the West, but um, but it seems like that idea of one hundred percent responsibility, yeah, like that feels like a Christian concept because yeah. in, in paganism it's just our gods versus the other tribes' gods, and and it's they're going to decide who wins. And Christianity is is heaven or hell. It's your choice, and it's yours alone. Yes, and you end up there, and you deserve whatever you get. Yes, that's which has a heavy subtext of you are 100 percent responsible yeah for where you end up i also love it at the end jesus is like okay guys don't blame these guys for killing me right. they're innocent and what he means by that is they believe thoughts that i'm a bad guy their minds want to be right and as long as they want to be right they can't do anything but kill me so don't make them wrong for getting caught in their righteous beliefs they're doing the best they know how. If you thought the way they thought, you would do this to me too. Mm -hmm. So, so don't blame. <laughs> take you know, take responsibility and don't make them wrong for being right. Right. And um, I love that. That I love that concept of we're all innocent. If we could let go of being right, we would do differently. Yeah, Amofo was the dude. Yeah, he that, was pretty cool. He was pretty cool. That they, you know, it's so funny because in San Francisco, he's. Uh, at least Christianity is so um, anathema to any type of intellectual conversation and or uh, you know topic, and yet uh, even from the most spiritual hippie esque uh, you know free loving um, you know San Franciscans and and yet I mean Jesus would put the biggest hippie in uh in san francisco's history to shame in terms of just coming down loving everybody um and a pretty powerful oh yeah powerful he message. walked the talk of 15 commitments i mean that i would say he was he was definitely a great role model well in the second one that you mentioned i think is also it's it's interesting that there's um you know the commitment that um the commitment of being okay with not being right 
is yeah. and uh, what was your articulation again i want to i commit to radical curiosity mm. to letting go of being right right of defending and instead opening up to curiosity and making learning more important than defending my opinion well the the thoughts that that come to mind with that is is, is, is in parallel to to spirituality i think in many different versions is is this this thought that you are well in the christian sense it's that you're broken hmm. to begin with <laughs> um and and that might be a little bit more of a 20th century uh kind of bible belt version yeah but still that concept is is a powerful one for millions and millions of people and probably and all religions are just in many ways psychotherapies developed over thousands of years they're all yeah it, i would argue i would argue anything is a religion that you, any set of beliefs mm -hmm. becomes a religion you know right. i would say the 15 commitments can become a religion it's just a set of beliefs that people decide they want to practice and um positive psychology can be a religion and you know all these different enneagram could be a religion right but it's it is it, i loved the uh the second commitment of of letting go of being right because holy hell do you end up in really bad places in life when you are so committed to being right yeah it's really painful and you cannot let go of this version in your head that is tied to the carbon drama triangle of i am the victim here and i am i am right that i am the victim or i, I am right i am the hero here yeah. And I, I think if I were to sum up my failures in in my professional career or personal career, personal uh, relationships would be to not being a good enough listener. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And probably it could all boil down to that, yeah. not being a good enough listener and talk about what got you here won't get you there. I think what makes great founders in the early stages is they don't listen to anyone saying that can't happen yes or you can't do that that's the swan song for a founder <laughs> is you can't do that and yet man does that flip on its head where you get two years in three years in and that big mouth and shut ears are the reason that you end up in some really really tough spots well i've just heard some statistics lately that 65 percent of co-founders break up mm. or oh no wait it's 65 percent of companies with co-founders fail because of the failure of the relationship of the co-founders. Mm -hmm. And my experiences working with co-founders and having been in a lot of those relationships and you know helping support keeping those together is because I'm right, you're wrong, and I blame you for the problems and or I and so there's this na 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 that gets happening and all of a sudden these people who either were friends or colleagues and had great ideas all of a sudden are against each other and the whole thing this whole brilliant idea falls apart because those relationships got damaged by people wanting to be right mm. so i we put a lot of attention on can you let go of being right so you can make learning more important and keep this relationship healthy right yeah yeah well i luckily dodged that bullet i had the best co-founder in the world and uh and we're brothers to this day but uh, God bless him for putting up with, <laughs> I'm sure, so many times where I just wasn't uh, a good enough listener. Mm. Um, okay, well, I want to ask two more questions okay. uh, before we 
before that's the questions I ask every guest and that's um tell me three stories in your life that have helped shape who you have become as as Diana Chapman. One moment that changed my life was uh, 20-some years ago, my brother-in-law was the CEO of Monsanto, Bob Shapiro. And, oh. uh, you know, <laughs> he got a lot of criticism. But one of the things that I really respected about Bob was that I felt at the time he was one of the real forefront leaders in being a conscious leader and creating a conscious culture as far as the, you know, how he treated people and how little drama were on his teams. He's pretty infamous for that. And Bob said, um, I'm going to give you a gift. Here's $5,000. You can do whatever you want with this money. Uh, but what I would, if I were you, I would go to Santa Barbara, California, and go study with Gay and Katie Hendricks, who, in my opinion, are the best coaches I have ever worked with. And he had sought out coaches for most, you know, most of his career. He was a Vipassana meditator. He was really into all that stuff back then. Bob was. Yeah. And uh, so he said- Leading Monsanto. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right? It's fascinating. Right. So he said, um, I've worked with the best coaches. These are the ones that I would work with if I were you. I, you and your husband go out and take that $5,000 and go study with them. So we did. And it's five days with them, changed my life. And uh, it was like somebody turned the lights on. And I remember being both just overwhelmingly excited about learning all these new things. And had you already started in this career yeah, path? Had you No, I mean I, I I had been a seeker all my life. So I'd always been interested in those things. Where'd so you, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Okay. And uh and uh, at the time I was living in Ann Arbor, Michigan when he gave us this gift. So we go out to Santa Barbara, we take this, it's amazing. And I'm both thrilled and angry. Like why am I you know, 30 years old, 30 some years old here learning this stuff for the first time. It feels tragic to me. So I remember right then and there saying, I'm going to devote my life to figuring out how to get this out to the many, as many people as I can. Mm -hmm. So that was the beginning of this career. And I know Bob had no idea this is that, you know, all of this would come from this gift, but it was the greatest gift anybody ever gave me was the gift of conscious relationship, basically. Um, that I then turned into conscious leadership and brought to the business world. So that was one. Two, uh, this past year we got sued, um, the conscious leadership group. We got sued by a, a leadership group down in LA who owns the trademark rights to the terms above the line and below the line. Now they don't use this in their brand and they're not, they're actually probably, I would say, um, in violation of the trademark, but they have a lot of money, money and some powerful lawyers. And so, our lawyer said you'd win, but it cost you almost a million dollars to try to fight these guys. So we gave it up and, um, you know, grieved a lot and mm -hmm. um, decided to, the terms have been so valuable, so we don't, we can't market with them, but we can use them for educational purposes. But I really looked at um, what's the mirror for me? You know, I was so angry because I was like, these terms are so helpful. And we're in a time when it would be really helpful to have more conscious leaders. Why wouldn't they want to share this? And they're not even using it. I, so I thought, that's so controlling. So I went, well, Diana, where are you controlling? And we'd had a lot of people ask about, you know, can we use your videos here? Can we have this here? And no, no, you know, we've been trying to control some of it. And so we made a decision um, to open source everything that we create. And... Um, that was shockingly um, liberating to free up potential money on the table 
and to let, you know, everybody can take this stuff. You can compete with us with our own materials. You can, you know, we're just have it. And um, that the abundance I feel in having that kind of, I would call it more like a gift economy mindset around that. Um, I mean, I'm still charging for my own services, but but just to be able to say, take this and have enough trust that, um, you know, there's enough people out there who want to learn this and I can still create a living with, you know, lots of competitors using my stuff. And What was that grieving like? And, and obviously there's uh, going through my head is there's a chance they make make me change the podcast name yeah, yeah. if they have the trademark on it. Um, but it's... Uh, well, there's- I just had all these visions of what we could do with the terms because... Um, yeah, they just work. We've tried so many other things. We tried, you know, in the box, out of the box, you know, all, all right. kinds of other things. But nothing would stick like that because minds were, or to the left, to the right, and people were like, what's left, what's right? You know, above and below, just kind of everybody was able to stick with that and what meant what was what. And right. so it's just been language that shared language that teams can use that has made such a difference in their ability to collaborate. So, so I grieved. You know, it was just darn. I really hoped we could use it more specific ways and. It's just requiring us to get creative, and yeah. um, but well, I'll, I'll remember not to create too much of a <laughs> vision for this uh, um, this podcast and name, given that it might have to change. Yeah, well, um, with that with that story, I think I think uh, as long as you're not offering the same creative or you're not in the same industry, I think you're mm. you're okay. But but anyway, that was bring great. it on if it happens. Yeah, and uh, you know, I learned a lot through the lawsuit and. Um, uh, yeah, so Man. I really love looking at how everything is my mirror. And so if I don't like something out there, I go take a look at how is it in here and own it and love it. And um, so they, that was a big gift. And those are those are two things that come to mind. Um, yeah. uh, I think another one, this is one of my favorite childhood stories is when I was a kid, I was in high school and um, the school board said, you can't smoke cigarettes if you are in extracurricular activities. And I thought, well, if, if there's a valid reason for that, you know, like it affects my performance as an athlete or as a wind player, you know, instrument player, that makes sense. But if you're going to put a moral judgment on people, that just felt unjust to me. So I, as part of the student government, wanted to fight that. Nobody else wanted to. So I, on my own, at the age of 16, took on the school board. And it was in the papers. And, you know, I and I won. And, oh, wow. Um, and you know, it's not like I'm a big proponent of kids smoking, but it was just this sense of, um, you know, it's not okay to put your judgments and control plans on other people because you want to be right. And um, and I, so I guess that started right. very young for me. Well, things get very messy after they're only a little bit messy, and if you don't say something when it's a little bit messy, yeah. And so I appreciate yeah. my courageous self, but that that started some <laughs> advocacy is- in myself that has happened. Then that's repeated many times in my life of different ways where I stood up for what I felt was an unjust thing. And that's really cool, mainly from the perspective of I imagined you. It. It did not engender any compassion towards the just the no kids should be able to smoke. <laughs> right. Like you had no no army of, of no. this is a no brainer. Right, we all should fight this. It was actually no. It was a pretty kind of moral and uh, and uh, pretty a pretty deep 
uh, position to take. Yeah, it was. And it was it was wild that I did that all on my own. I, when I look back, I'm like, wow, what, what came over me that I was willing to do all that? And especially because there wasn't anybody really backing that, like, oh, we all agree. Right. So, um, Were there influences in your life of, of people like that around you and your family or? No, really? no, it was just, I don't know. It was just something in me that just said, that's just not, that doesn't work. Um, for people of power to tell people who don't have power what they can and cannot do unless there's you know really feels like some some valid reason that um the way can point to and so uh yeah i just I, that was that was what i stood for and i've always you know was the girl that said hey how come the boys get the big tire on the playground and the girls get the little one like that's not okay and we marched in the principal's office and said we have to trade and okay we're right. going to trade from now on and you know i was always i think always an advocate for justice and inequality <sighs> i don't know if i'm that brave um even in something as as uh well one that is really brave just on it on the face of it but yeah it's it is something to where i um think maybe it's tied to the three in achievement mentality to where the decision to take on a task for me can be so just powered by what are the chances of winning uh -huh. rather <clears throat> than right or wrong. Yeah. Whereas my type is, hey, um, I focus on where people might control other people and the injustice of that. And so I'm more willing to courageously stand against that as part of my my system oh, yeah fascinating yeah okay and, and uh the other question that i asked that i'd love to ask you is uh what's something you think a lot about like an inordinate amount of of your time thinking about that you rarely get a chance to talk about you know publicly socially or or professionally yeah um well i i think it probably would be the heartbreak I have around watching so many people be disconnected from nature and disconnected from, you know, I, I think ultimately most of man's suffering is coming now from its disconnect from nature and it's wanting to manage and control nature uh, and uh, objectify nature and, um, you know, even things like watching everybody walk around with single use plastic water bottles with like not even a care in the world about how, what's how is this affect everything else around me, um, I I just think a lot about that, and I, I to me a lot of people look like walking zombies, just so unaware of how their behaviors are affecting um, animals and plants, and so getting leaders back out into nature, um, having them start to have a deep appreciation for it, to want to care for it, to want to care for species when when I care for the um you know the quality of the air the the water that that's really um something that matters a lot to me and you know if i had it my way i'd be like if you want to hire my team to come in i want <laughs> i would be you know i'd love to be pickier about really getting aggressive on i want your behaviors to change around how you're taking care of or lack of taking care of the environment yeah, that there's two thoughts going through my my one. I think that is so true, and and the just this disconnect from nature and the unknown repercussions of that. Mm -hmm. um, and the two thoughts that are going through my head. One is is it is the, I remember hearing that um, reading that there was a study that that showed uh, in a prison even a a uh, poster of trees. 
mm. had a calming effect on inmates. Yeah. And and that just nature has this, I mean, there's this new thing going on right now in, in uh, California called, um, I think it's forest bathing. Oh, right. <laughs> Have you heard of it? It's a Japanese term. Is it? Tree okay. bathing. Well, I, they, I can't remember their word for it, but it means tree bathing. <clears throat> tree bathing. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah. I just heard about it. It's like this new thing that people are doing in Muir Woods and leading these tree bathing. And it's just hiking. Yeah. It's just hiking. Okay. But the emphasis in, in that... Um, it's very deliberate, you know, chosen words of, of, you know, it's not just hiking. It's actually just mm. cleansing. Yeah. Well, and it's like taking in the high oxygen content of a heavily wooded area, you know, right. and just, ah, yeah, yeah. And the aliveness that comes with being in all of that and yeah. And the right. beauty of it all. And yeah, it's, it's, I hike a lot. It's one of my favorite things to do. And, uh, and so I'm bringing more teams. I live outside of Santa Cruz and I live in the woods and I bring teams there and people are like, oh, it feels so good here. We need to come That's, here more often. And I was just saying to someone on Sunday night uh, that one of the most underappreciated uh, geographies of Northern California is the Santa Cruz Mountains. Mm -hmm. No one ever talks about it. They're amazing. Yeah, they're beautiful. I live right in the heart of them and have these gorgeous views of them and um and birds and animals and you know there's they're everywhere and uh, insects and yeah i just i love being a part of all of that and caring for it and stewarding it and that's it's important to me and i would i would like it to be more important so you know it, well and the, the other thought going through my head is in the downside of of conventional christianity is viewing the world as this temporary place mm -hmm. um and i think that leading to a uh, this Western idea that it's like, you know, this is a bus stop mm -hmm. and <laughs> people don't treat bus stops too well no. uh, rather than just the last 150 years of the scientific um, illumination of ecology mm -hmm. and that we absolutely, we are not apart from nature. We absolutely depend on it. Yeah, well, I'm open to it being a bus stop, and I'm also open it open to it being a, a very sacred, rare place. And could they both be true? Right. And uh, knowing that they're both true, and I don't know, they, it doesn't yeah, really a matter. A temple uh, instead of yeah, a bus stop. What right? matters to me is just that it's beautiful to me, and I really like caring for it, and I like the idea of others being able to enjoy it in its in its majesty. And so, you know, I think probably. If you really knew me, you would know I'm an environmentalist at heart. And probably one of the reasons why I've brought, I've put my attention on business leaders uh, when it comes to conscious leadership it, or, or conscious relationship is that it seems to me that they're likely the ones who have a lot of influence over policies and have a lot of wealth to influence things. And so... You know, that's that's I care I care a lot about those who have influence being really thoughtful about caring for nature. Yeah, it makes me want to follow eights. Eights are <laughs> fighting the cause, whether whether they think they can win it or not, and therefore it's it's a little more. Um, it sounds a little more pure. Uh, oh, I don't know about that. I just think um, you know what's true about me is I'm pretty tender-hearted and. Um, I, I get brokenhearted about watching things that are beautiful in my mind go away or or um, suffer significantly because of a lack of awareness on man's part. So, um, what what do, what would make a in 2019 within the startup ecosystem is there is there a pattern for what and 
feel free to hurt my feelings if you if if it's not threes that doesn't bother me at all oh. is there a i know that we want to um kind of view it that everything is 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 uh, the same but are there leaders that is there a category or number in the enneagram that makes for a better leader in a time like now no i don't think so i think any and all of them are equally valuable and i think it's just about are they are they practicing being present and aware um any of them are beautiful leaders so mm. no one particular one in my mind more effective than another in that way mm. um and i can see the virtues of of eights in talking to you and and uh seeing the downsides of of a three just picking battles that can be can be one yeah it's like hey uh, hey threes i want you to create cool stuff and achieve but will you make sure that everybody wins mm. when you win and if only you're winning or only your team is winning then we all didn't win and and everybody includes all of the creatures and so that's that's what most matters is that um in my mind nobody wins unless everybody wins right yeah totally no it's not a happy ending if your narrative is you uh do well in business you everybody gets ski houses and then the world uh is over in 2054 yeah it doesn't make sense <laughs> not a great story <laughs> no. um well diana thank you so much for for coming by this is uh god I love this conversation and i hope to do a part two with you sometime soon. oh i love it it's so fun to be here with you and and thank you for this work I, and thank you for all of you who are listening and putting your attention on this um i think it matters so much that you're paying attention not only to the you know the technical side of how you lead but that you're also paying attention to the psychology and and um, the well-being of yourself and of those you lead. And I'm grateful um, for all of the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for that. Of course. And for uh, for listeners, it's 15 Commandments of, of Conscious Leadership um, is is the best-selling book that that I love and give to uh, and, and recommend to every single founder. Um, is there anything anything else that people can uh, that should how should they find you online? You can find us at conscious.is, which is okay. dot is. So conscious is and um, is there we, another book in the works? Not a, well, yeah. Um, Jim, my co-founder, he's working on um, the fifteen commitments of conscious living. Oh, um, awesome. Yeah. So just more of like how would these apply at home and in other areas of your life? So. I can't wait to read it. Yeah, we're excited about it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Diana. All we'll right. chat soon. Be well. All right. You too. Hey, friends and listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to hear more of these types of conversations, go over to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe or leave us a review. Good or bad, we love hearing from people that that appreciate this type of conversation and want more of it. You can also follow us on Twitter at go below the line, as well as see in our Twitter bio, our email address for you to shoot us a note on any suggestions of guests or topics that we should cover. We read every single one. So thank you for those that have already sent those in. That's it for us today. We will see you next time on below the line. Below the Line is brought to you by Straight Up Podcasts.